Hey there, and welcome to the United Church Podcast. We are a new church here in Seattle committed to an ethic of love. We are striving to be a people united, united with Jesus, each other, ourselves, and the world around us. We hope you enjoyed this week's homily. that you are here today as we continue in our series on Mark. We're walking through the gospel according to Mark, and we've titled this series, this look through the gospel of Mark, Insurgents. Because what Mark has been doing and what Mark is creating and what Mark is crafting as a narrative here in the midst of the gospel is a narrative that says we are a people of revolution. We are a people of change because of who Jesus is, because of what Jesus did, and because of our faith in him, we are a change-oriented people, a people who have been inserted into the systems and the structures of this world to create some disruption, to create some chaos, and to create a new way of being human, a new way of living in this world, a new way of being. So as we look today at the gospel of Mark, let me take a moment to pray for us in this space as we look at these words together. God, thank you for your words. Thank you for the stories of Jesus and how they continue to inspire us 2,000 plus years later. Thank you, Father, for how it is that you have changed us and how you continue to change us, how you continue to move in our hearts and our minds and our souls, how you stir us to action. Father, this morning as we hear from these words of Jesus, may we be stirred even more to be that people of change that you have called us to be as co-creators with you, as co-change agents with you here in this world and in this space. So, Father, as we look at your words today, guide our hearts, guide our minds, guide our souls, and guide our spirits that we may understand you more and seek to do your will. It's in your Son's name that we pray. Amen. This revolution, this revolution of Jesus will not be microwaved. The revolution will not be microwaved. I, like anybody, am a product of instant gratification. I love things to happen really quickly. And I, if I see something, I want it immediately in my life and I want it now, right? I don't want to wait. I don't want to be patient. I don't want to allow for things to simply evolve or simply happen. I want to take action and I want that thing now. I want Game of Thrones to be really good, and I want to see both episodes now. I don't want to wait two weeks. I don't want to wait until 9 p.m. tonight to watch tonight's episode, and then another seven days to watch another episode. I want to know how it all ends now. And it had better be good. I have invested a lot of time <laughs> in this show, right? It had better be good. But the revolution will not be microwaved. I don't know if you saw this week in the Seattle Times, a report came out that 400%, there has been a 400% increase in hate crimes in Seattle since 2012. 
a 400% increase since 2012. That's seven years. It has increased by 400%. What's even worse, if that doesn't sound bad enough, there has been a 524% increase in hate crime assaults in the exact same period. Physical, violent attacks since 2012 are up 524%. In our city, in the city limits itself, this is not about the area. This is not about the state. The state is only up 39%. Yay, Washington. 524%. That is absolutely evil. Absolutely horrendous. This should not happen in our city. And this should not happen anywhere. I have been working on a very difficult and time-consuming, by time-consuming, it's taken me too long, <laughs> dissertation <laughs> on the effects of narrative and race and how the two combine and how the two work together. Then as I have walked my way through this thing for five years now, as I have worked on this dissertation for way too long, I have stumbled across a lot of different and interesting stories, a lot of different and interesting facts, a lot of ways in which everything is coming together in this world centering around how we talk about race, but how we understand people that are non-white. It's a really fascinating topic in conversation, and every time, almost, no, every time I come into conversation with another white Christian about the topic of race, over and over and over and over again, the response is, things are better. Things are better. Shh, we don't need to talk about it anymore. You're just, you're upsetting the apple cart. You're creating more trouble than is actually necessary. Just be quiet. We don't need to talk about this anymore. It's way better than it was in the 60s. It's way better than it was when King was assassinated. It's way better now. Just be quiet. Let it sit. Let it lie. Let it be. This conversation is so counterproductive. This isn't just conversations that I have with people, but these are emails and instant messages, messages, messages from Facebook that, that come to me on the regular talking about, just shut your mouth. I want to hear about this stuff. It's better. It's better. It's better. Now than ever, it is better. And what I find myself thinking about is that letter that Dr. King penned, the letter he penned from his jail cell in Birmingham, the letter to Birmingham jail in which he responded to the white moderate Christian, in which he said some things that still ring so very true today. This is, this is what he wrote. I must confess that over the past few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. 
have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action, who paternalistically believes he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by a mythical concept of time, and who constantly advises the Negro to wait for a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. If you have not read a letter from a Birmingham jail, you can just Google it and read the PDF. It is unbelievably brilliant as he seeks to point out our moderating effects as white Christians on the effects of our brothers and sisters that are non-white in this world around us. I believe that a lot of this actually stems from a terrible, terrible misunderstanding of Scripture, a terrible, terrible misunderstanding and misapplication of Mark chapter 4, which is where we find ourselves in this story of the gospel of Mark. Now, Mark, again, is writing about a revolution that is taking place, that there is this new coming revolution because of Jesus that is ushering its way in, and we, as white, moderate Christians, oftentimes want to say, that's great, God is on the move. God is doing some things. God is making change all around us, and it's true, and we believe it. But we want to stay at an arm's length away from it, if not further. We want to distance ourselves from any sort of tension and trouble and pain and suffering that might emerge because of our interaction with this revolution. We want to stay clear. But here, in Mark chapter 4, this is what we read. This is what Jesus said. Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 26. He also said, This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain, first the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. This misapplication, this misunderstanding of Jesus' words here is a really bad understanding of farming. I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up in Illinois, and I didn't grow up necessarily surrounded by cornfields and soybeans. But I kind of did. I grew up in a city, a small city, a city that was basically Magnolia and Queen Anne and Belltown all combined together population-wise, right? Like just a city of about 80 to 100,000 people. But all around us was massive amounts of farmland. 
where people worked day and night to farm. And what's funny is, when I was growing up, I didn't understand farming either. I thought farming was like the easiest job in the world, right? All they do is they go out and they dig in some dirt. Who doesn't want to play in dirt, right? Especially when you're a kid. You're like, yeah, go dig in some dirt. This would be great. They throw some seeds in. They walk away. That's it. And then, you know, six months later, they come back. They're like, great, look at all this harvest. Let's, let's, get to, let's get to work. Let's cut all this down. Let's sell it. And let's live a, lap of, a life in the lap of luxury. That's kind of what I thought growing up about what farming was. Because it was just sitting around and watching things grow. And that's exactly what we think about Mark chapter 4. That this revolution that is taking place is... We just go out, we throw some seeds, and we sit back and we watch it all happen. We watch God at work with us from a hand, an arm, a foot, like a, a huge distance away from it. Not needing to interact, not needing to engage with it in any way, shape, or form. And just let God do his thing. Let God work. Let God make it happen. This revolution is not about that. Because what I came to learn and understand about farming is a lot of work. It's a lot of work. Not only, not only do they go out and drop seeds, but before they ever drop seeds, they have to prepare the ground. They have to get to work. They have to do things to turn over soil, to prepare the soil so that the seed can be received so that it can grow, so that change can happen. Not only do they prepare the soil, but then once they do drop in the seed, it's not about sitting around and waking or waiting for it. They, they go and they tend the soil. They make sure that the soil is constant. They're always taking soil samples always taking soil samples to make sure that everything is right. And whatever is wrong in the balance of the soil, they do something to it. They add chemicals or they add nutrients into the ground. If it's non-GMO, it's nutrients, right? If it's GMO, it's chemicals, right? Both and. But they're adding things to the soil to make sure that they're going to get the best crop, the best yield, the best results possible. They're not sitting around and waiting for this great bounty to happen. When I was a kid, my parents had a garden in the backyard. And it was like a, it was, I don't know, maybe, maybe you know, half of this, right? It, it wasn't huge, but we would plant corn and we would plant tomatoes and, and strawberries and green beans. Green beans were fun right? Like those were the things that we, carrots, that was the other thing, because like, you got to pull them up from the root, like out of the ground. It was amazing, right? But we would go and my dad would like, we would, we would like, we would just like drag the ground with the hoe. Like you're constantly like turning over the soil. You drop it all in. And then my dad would make me go out and weed the thing. I had to pull out the terrible stuff, the stuff that was going to be in the ground that would actually suck nutrients away from the seed that we wanted to grow. We had to, I had to pull out the stuff that was going to choke the life out of the good seed that was there, the seed of food, <laughs> the seed of a wonderful, wonderful, beautiful, long orange carrot. 
We had to make sure that everything was ready, that everything was good. We had to do everything possible to protect that seed. We didn't wait. We didn't sit back and do nothing. We didn't drop a seed and say, my work here is done. We tended the garden. Jesus used so many different metaphors about agriculture and gardening throughout his life because that was what people knew. That's what people understood. And here in the midst of this is he's talking about revolution. He's saying, you plant that seed and God is going to do something amazing because of that seed. God is going to do, he is going to grow some change. He's going to grow some things that are going to make a difference in this world. But you had better get in that garden as well. You had better get your hands dirty you had better make sure that the weeds that are there are removed so that it doesn't suck away the nutrients and the goodness from that seed that is beginning to birth and blossom and grow. In Mark 4, the very next parable is the parable of the mustard seed. The parable of the mustard seed, the smallest and tiniest seed of all. But it would grow into being this great and giant gnarly tree that birds could actually rest in. That birds could sit and perch in. The smallest seed could turn into the biggest part of a garden. But we had better tend it. We had better take care of it. It doesn't take much, but it does take more care. It does take more work. It does take more faithfulness than sometimes we're ready to give. This is the revolution that Jesus talked about. This is the revolution that cannot be microwaved. Jesus never promised instantaneous change in this world. And while that is one of the hardest things for me to wrap my head around, because I want it to be microwaved. I want everything to be changed for the better, to look more and more like the kingdom of God now than it did the day before. While it cannot be microwaved, God does ask us and God does require us to tend the garden well, to tend it and do the work. In a book of essays, Heather Harivit—I'm <laughs> not going to pronounce her name right. Uh, Heather uh, Havrileski—that's it. Heather Havrileski, in her book *What If This Were Enough*, said, "We have to reject the shiny, shallow future that will never come, and locate ourselves in the current flawed moment. Instead of toggling between victory and defeat, we have to learn to live in the middle." in the gray area where a real life can unfold on its own time. We have to breathe in reality instead of distracting ourselves around the clock. We have to open our eyes and our hearts to each other. We have to connect with what already is, who we already are, what we already have. Someone once said, not about this, but similarly, that we cannot change the past 
nor can we change the future because it has yet to be written. All we can do is change the now, change the present, change what is here in this moment. Tend the garden now. Get to work now. And even though the revolution will not be microwaved, it can be tended. And we can shepherd it well into the future. That the future that we write together can be different. It can be different than what we experience now. And we had better do it. We had better be a part of this because this is what God's kingdom is. It is a kingdom where everyone is welcome, where all can come together in this place, in this space, at this time, together to experience the beautiful, insurmountable, unbelievable love of God here and now. We have to be in the moment we have to work in the here and now. We have the seeds of revolution growing in our midst. If only we would tend it. Shane Claiborne wrote, Peacemaking doesn't mean passivity. It is an act of interrupting injustice without mirroring injustice. The act of finding a third way that is neither fight nor flight, but the careful, arduous pursuit of reconciliation and justice. It is about a revolution of love that is big enough to set both the oppressed and the oppressors free. This revolution of here and now, this revolution of tending the ground, of tending the seeds of revolution is not something that is about only setting the oppressed free, but it's about setting the oppressors free as well and the recognition that they were also enslaved to a system and a structure of violence upon the other, upon one another, of realizing that we can actually come together in this beautiful beautiful space. Tend the garden. Tend the garden. Abraham Joshua Heschel is a man who marched with Dr. King. He, he wrote so many beautiful and brilliant things, but in his book, I Asked for Wonder, which is more of an anthology of all the things that he ever wrote, a collection of brilliant sayings, he said, there is meaning beyond this absurdity. Know that every deed counts, that every word is power. Above all, remember that you must build your life as if it were a work of art. Build your life as if it were a work of art. Heschel marched with Dr. King as a man who fled from Nazi-invaded Germany, as, as, a, as a Jewish man who understood systemic murder, systemic oppression, who experienced it and watched members of his own family die and perish as a result of this terrible anti-Semitism, of this horrible Holocaust. As he made his way into the States and as he saw the plight that Dr. King was talking about, as he saw about the systemic oppression, he said, I must too walk with this. 
And in the midst of it, it was for him, it was about creating and building this new world together, this new place where all people of all stripes, of all religions, of all ethnicities could come together under a banner of mutual humanity, where everyone is a human being worthy of love, worthy of respect, worthy of care together, where there is nothing that divides us and separates us but pulls us together. He said, we have to tend our gardens as a work of art. That the life in which you are building, the small acts and small seeds that you are planting along the way, these seeds of revolution, everywhere that you go, don't just leave them there and walk away, but tend them. It is a move from being an instant gratification person to a faithful presence person. It is a move from seeing this revolution as something that, is a, that we can microwave and just it all can happen. With just one election, everything can change for the better. It's not about an instant gratification moment. It's not about an inauguration of a president. It's not about an inauguration or a, an appointment of a group of people. It is about a church that has a faithful presence in its own community, in its own place, that can create the change that is necessary. The seeds of revolution are here. We are a part of scattering those seeds, but we need to tend the garden around us. Tend the garden and tend it well. That is how you build, that is how you draw, that is how you paint, that is how you mold, that is how you sculpt a life that is a work of art in this revolution, in this kingdom of God. Father, we pray this morning that these seeds of revolution that we scatter, these opportunities to create change and to make a difference, to stand up and stand in and stand for our neighbors. Father, that we will be that change, that we will be those people. And in the midst of it all, in the midst of the difficulties, in the midst of the strife, in the midst of the pain, may we be a comfort. May we be a place of refuge. May we be a place of hope and a place of love where we truly are a place where we, we say it and we believe it, that you will never walk alone. Father, may we be those people and may the seeds of revolution begin to blossom in our midst. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's homily. If you're in Seattle, we'd love for you to join us on Sundays at noon at 1316 3rd Avenue West in Queen Anne. If you'd like to support our efforts, please visit unitedchurch.gives to partner with us financially. Be in peace and God bless.